Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest to share their experiences of being a person of color in white spaces. Birding while black. A few months ago, the plight of black birders was thrown into the national spotlight because of an incident in Central Park where a white woman called the police on a black male for asking her to follow the rules with her dog. Today, we'll talk more about that. And our guest knows a whole lot about that because he's been black all his life, but this is also his life's work and passion. Dr. J. Drew Lana received a BA and a master's degree in zoology and a PhD in forest resources from Clemson University. He's a native of Edgefield in Aiken, South Carolina. In his 20 years as a Clemson University faculty, he's worked to understand how forest management impacts wildlife and how human beings think about nature. Dr. Lamb holds an endowed chair as an alumni distinguished professor and was named an alumni master teacher in 2012. In his teaching, research, and outreach roles, Drew seeks to translate conservation science to make it relevant to others in ways that are evocative and understandable. As a Black American, he has been intrigued with how culture and ethnic prisms can blend perceptions of nature and its care. His connection of conservation dots and the coloring of the conservation conversation has been delivered nationally. Dr. Lanham is a widely published author, both in peer-reviewed journals and popular magazines, and an award-nominated prolific poet writing about his experiences as a birder, hunter, and wild-wandering soul. His first solo work, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, was published in 2017. Coloring the conservation conversation is his outreach mantra. This means considering how ethnicity and other factors impact how we see nature and then conserve natural resources. As a birder, he uses birds and the conservation issues surrounding them as an inspirational vehicle to connect others to the outdoors and advocate for their protection. Being the Dot listeners, let's welcome our guest daughter today, Dr. J. Drew Lanham. Applause and around. How are you, Dr. Stacy? I'm good. I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. So let's just get right to it. So sure. Why don't you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about your journey to nature and conservation and birding? Well, I, I grew up in Edgefield, South Carolina, which um, most people probably don't know where that is. But if you know where Augusta, Georgia is, if you know where Columbia, South Carolina is, then it sits sort of um, in between those two being closer to Augusta than to to Columbia, but it, it sits in the middle uh, of the state on the western edge of the state along the Savannah River. So I grew up on a family farm there in the middle of the, the Sumter National Forest and that that family farm mm. um, had been in the family probably since the early 1900s, uh, 1919 at the latest when my grandfather came um, back from, from France in World War I as a combat veteran. So uh, growing up on that land 
um, with my with my grandmother and with my um, with my 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 parents and my siblings was um, was in many ways sort of a, a an idyllic uh, beginning because I mean we depended on nature we grew our own food our own vegetables and fruits from our own orchards we raised our own beef and pork and um, and and even had our own water system um, from which to to slake our thirst and to to bathe our bodies and to water mm-hmm. um, water other beings so that was you know that was my beginning that was my my genesis so to speak and and birds became sort of uh, fast friends for me mm-hmm. as I traveled between my grandmother's house daily and my parents' house. Birds were often the most obvious wild beings out there if I didn't see them flying or um or 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 I would hear them singing so it was it was just a constant for me mm-hmm. it was a constant and um and so I tell people. Um, you know, growing up that way, um, there was no choice really, but to to sort of fall in love with these with these beings. And then, um, both of my parents were science teachers. My mother taught biology um, in the school system in Aiken County, Edgefield in Aiken County. And my father taught earth science. So, you know, I had it coming and going, um, top to bottom and in between. I I guess you did. <laughs> So that that that's that's where I got that start. Uh, you know, my this fascination with birds really came in large part because I was fascinated with flight. I always wanted to fly, and um, and birds mm-hmm. birds proved the way for me to do it at least vicariously. After I you know I tried as a kid in all sorts of sometimes dangerous ways and it always failed, but birds. Birds did it mm-hmm. so easily that I figured out, you know, I could watch them, and uh, with a little bit of imagination, I could, I could go where they went. Mm-hmm. Nice, very cool. So, so, so then, birds have always been a part of you at some level. Always, uh, you know, I, it's it's hard for me to um, think of a time really when they weren't, because I. You know, I watched my grandmother, for example, she was the first person I saw feed birds and she fed birds um, out of a bag of grits. She would take the those uh, a handful of grits and just throw them out to the birds because she said um, she pitied the birds. And 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 she reckoned that since God, God's eye was on the sparrow, that her should be, too. Mm. So I, I watched her. I watched her care for the birds. I also watched. Um, I also watched her sort of her um, her culture uh, that sort of wound around birds, her her dislike and quite frankly, fear of owls, for example, as bad as bad omen, Um, you know, blue jays as birds um, to 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 not like because they stole her the pecans from her pecan tree. And and so that was, you know, that was a daily thing for me. I was never really separated from from birds, and and I would see them every day. And some birds would appear in the springtime that 
had not been there in the winter. And I would do a little bit of research and come to understand how those birds had migrated to different places in the world. And, and mm -hmm. that was important to me because I always wanted to travel and birds travel, sure. birds traveled. And so watching them mm -hmm. travel was okay. a way for me to learning about their travel was a way for me to, you know, to expand my range, as I said. Of course, of course. So how did you choose uh, nature conservation, that type of work as a profession? Well, it, um, you know, I always like to think it it sort of chose me, but, mm. um, you know, it was one of these things where as a, as a black kid, um, especially as I got into high school and this whole new thing called uh, STEM, <laughs> was was coming was coming on board um, mm -hmm. people said well you know you're if you're and there was a big push right if you're mm -hmm. if you're black if you're um good at math and science then mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was almost yep. this it was almost this uh this declaration you must be an engineer it was this command mm -hmm. and um mm -hmm. i've been it was i agree yeah you know and it was and it, it was it, in, in part, it was what um, people thought was certainly a way to turn the tide of a lack of of, um, of diversity in engineering. But also there was a good mm -hmm. living to be made there. And people had no mm -hmm. idea what kind of living an ornithologist or an ecologist would make. As a matter of fact, when I would tell people I wanted to major in zoology, they would, you know, the next question would always be, well, why would you want to work at a zoo? Mm -hmm. um as if that and, and people just just didn't know in part so um of course so i took the route of of um trying to become an engineer i went to school um at clemson university in part because i got a, a pretty prestigious scholarship along with some some friends of mine and um it was a full four-year ride from dupont um to go to school anywhere in the United States with guaranteed employment anywhere in the world with DuPont afterwards. So wow. who's going to turn that down? Right. Well, I, I thought about it <laughs> because, <laughs> because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh -huh. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but, um, you know, it, it, it ended up, it ended up being, um, it ended up being a way for me to, relieve my mother who by that point in time had been widowed as my father died my sophomore year in high school um, mm. it was an opportunity for me to relieve her of the encumbrance of tuition so you know i like any kid i wanted to be independent i wanted to make my own way um, i looked for other ways to go to school um, got some smaller scholarships at places like hampton um, mm -hmm. It was Hampton Institute then, Hampton University now. Um, man, I, you know, I was excited about going to Hampton and majoring in in marine biology. Um, and I will admit, as a as a young man, I had other things on my mind and going to Hampton as well. And um, but you know, that that full scholarship came around, and it was hard to deny. And and people told me it was hard to deny, impossible to deny. So I went to Clemson and uh majored in mechanical engineering and uh, mm -hmm. you know did pretty well at it by the time i mm -hmm. i left and I, I changed my major my junior year um i was mm -hmm. still floating above a 3-0 um sure which wasn't which wasn't bad out of a four 
but um, I did not. Especially in engineering. Yeah, in mechanical engineering. Um, but I, I was hating it. I, I, I didn't like it. Um, it was. It wasn't fun. Um, I had <laughs> I had no passion for it in the summertime when I would work my internship um, at um, at the Savannah River site in in Aiken, and I was making really good money for a kid in the in the mid '80s. Um, I, I can remember going into the to the little offices and the cubicles because each summer I'd have a different assignment, but from day one <laughs> I would put I would put my calendar above my desk and. At the end of each day, the biggest pleasure was marking an X through that day. Wow. And, and when you're doing that, when, when you're wishing away time like that, you're not doing the right thing. That's right. So that's a great, I just want to pause for a minute and just reflect that for our listeners that um, that you could have chased the money, right? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that and had probably an illustrious career. And I think what's also true is that when you have an aptitude that is good and that you when you are smart and just call it what it is how about that when you are smart that you can do a lot of things that you could you could have been an engineer or this kind of scientist and on and on and on but you chose your passion over finances well dr stacy that's one thing i you know i emphasize to people because i i am asked frequently to speak to others on um, on my career, on careers in, in STEM. And, mm-hmm. and I, quite frankly, I prefer the STEAM um, variation of that where we are at in the arts. But, um, you know, I, I ask people or I, I tell people that, you know, what you don't want to do is you don't want to create resentment. You don't want to live by resentment. Mm-hmm. You don't want to mm-hmm. live by regret. And so, in that way, as you said, um, following your heart um, often leads you in circuitous routes to a goal. It may not lead you in that direct path, but mm-hmm. imagine a passionless life. Imagine living a life of marking X's through the days so that you cannot wait until each day is over. And so, in essence, on a job, you're wishing away eight hours a day of your life that's that's one third one third of a large portion of your life that you're wishing away that you're hating and um and that was i could tell that was grinding on me i I felt like it was really killing me and so i made the change to zoology in the second semester of my junior year when yeah there was light at the end of the tunnel there was um, a guaranteed employment, good money, but um, it didn't mean to much as much to me as as having um, a clean heart. That's beautiful. So, where did you realize that birding was a thing and work in the forest was a thing? Well, I, I from from very early on. I mean, in the second grade, um, I, I had a teacher who encouraged me, Ms. Beasley, to to follow the path of, of loving birds. I think she probably loved birds as well because she used to give the class these pictures to color. And um, and I made sure that I colored my birds in a certain way that reflected um, who those birds were, what they actually were and the field guides and, the, and, and what we knew as scientists. And so uh, there was a librarian too that, that allowed me to 
migrate from the, the kitty section of the library with these very thin, colorful fun books, man, she let me go over to that side of the library where there were these tall bookshelves that were stacked full of thick books with bird pictures and other animal pictures and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, that helped me understand that there was something greater than just watching birds, but that there were these people called ornithologists who made careers, who made life, made lives out of watching birds, essentially. And so it was second or third grade when, when I understood that it was something that you could do. So, so, you know, that was, that was early, early on. And, um, and when you have something in your mind that deeply, then it's, uh, it's hard to erase. It's hard to, um, to have anything come in and uproot it. And even though there were other things that came along in terms of, you know, opportunities to do engineering and, and then some people saying, well, you like animals, you're smart. If you're not, if you're not going to do the engineering thing, then maybe you should be a veterinarian. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, um, no, I was just going to say along with that passion, it's part of, to me, part of what, what drives passion is choice. You know, if you have if you have choices in your life, then you can follow the passionate path. You don't have to be locked in to expectation and what others would have you do um, or how society would define you. I mean, because because quite frankly, and being real about it, you know, there were people who said, well, black kids don't do that. Black kids don't watch birds. (laughs) They they don't tromp around in the woods. That's right. Uh huh. Right. Well, and I, and that's part of where I was going to go. Is like, how was that received? Well, um, <laughs> not well by a lot of people early on. You know, again, it was just one of these things. I can remember my my scholarship um, advisors were were adamant. I mean, it was an engineering scholarship, but a, a year or two after I got that scholarship, it changed such that. Um, you could also major in some of the quote unquote pure sciences, including biology, I believe, and um, and still receive the scholarship. I mean, because oh, of biomedical uh-huh. engineering and the like. And um, and I remember I said, OK, well, at least I'll be able to change and do that. But um, folks were pretty inflexible. And and it was one of these deals where mm. people kept saying, you got to stay the path. You got to stay the path. You got to stay the path. and. I was a good hoops jumper, as I as I like to say in my in my writing, and um, I followed commands well, and because I didn't want to disappoint people. But and and you know, and sure. that and and a lot of that pressure came from came from my own um, to 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 stay in the lane, so to speak, to not venture out from expectation, to not disappoint those people who had um, sort of stood behind me, but. Um, one of the things that it, and it took me a while to realize it, Dr. Stacy, but uh, <laughs> I, I finally figured it out. I was like, man, this is my life. You know, it's my life and I can respect um, the ancestors. I can respect my family, those who've come 
before me and achieved in all of these ways by excelling at whatever it is that I do. Um, but I, I can tell you now, I knew I knew that I was going to be a mediocre mechanical engineer, and and you don't want mediocre people, you know, designing aircraft engines. Um, you, no, thank right. you. That's right. Absolutely. So so follow the passion to uh -huh. to the things that you do best. So it's interesting. Um, I don't want to go too far this because I want to get to make sure we get to my time together. That. Um, you know, African-Americans historically could choose teacher or, um, oh goodness, the, the other one escapes me, nurse, nursing, those kinds, right, right. And that's what folks went to college for. And then we started to branch out and branch out. And now we have people working in, 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 in fields like you are. I wonder if you could share with us what your favorite part of birding is. It's, you know what, Dr. Stacy, it's still watching birds fly, closing my eyes mm. and traveling with them. Mm. It, it is, it has not changed for me. The fascination with watching them fly, hearing them sing, observing their behavior, knowing that they are doing really these, um, these super heroic things, migrating across continents, across oceans with no rest, that they have these superhero abilities to, to sleep on the wing, that they can find their way back to the same spot um, year after year. And so that that's the first thing that turned me on about birds was that they had these super heroic lives that as humans we could not achieve so i i still like to say in in those ways i'm still a boy when it comes to birds and and that that wonder meant that um that i experienced watching them as i wandered between my grandmother's house and my parents house between the ramshackle and the ranch I'm still no less thrilled if I get to flush a covey of bobwhite quail. I'm still no less thrilled when I hear a wood thrush sing. I'm still no less thrilled to watch a red-tailed hawk trace circles in the sky. So, I, you know, as I said, um, I always advocate choice, but in some ways, I don't think I had any choice to be anything other than who I am. I got you. Yeah. Yep. So it sounds like you found them and they found you as well. Exactly. So you said yourself that that uh, that your choice of career is not one that is traditionally chosen by African-American men, which means to me that you are the dot. You are the chip in the cookie, the speck, the ink blot in lots of situations. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about maybe those challenges and even maybe the widest situation that you found yourself in. Well, you're, you're right. It, it is often the, um, you know, you're often the raisin in the milk, <laughs> you know, the. Oh, I like that the, one. I haven't heard that one. I got to write that down true. <laughs> the raisin in the milk um, or more appropriately, ornithologically, the crow in the snow. So um, 
in in that in that way um you know it, it's there there are challenges obviously and I, I think that i probably really began to notice sort of the that that difference um when i was when i was in grad school and there there were no other and by and in grad school you know you're you're out um sort of among peers you're going to professional meetings you're beginning to establish yourself that way and i would go to these professional meetings Mm -hmm. and i'd be the only one of my kind (laughs) you know i'd be the the snow bunting in the flock of or the 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 blackbird in the flock of snow buntings and um and and so i began to i began to notice that and then when i began to do research in some of these work and research in some of these remote areas and you'd come upon a confederate flag for example you know that's a that's that's a that's a sign to me that somebody um thinks of me as less than human i don't i don't care what it, i don't care what anybody mm. says i don't care what kind of heritage they can quote um i don't care what kind of valor they try to paint their ancestors with if they fought or believed in that flag in any way then it stood for the subjugation of african americans of black people as chattel as livestock so Mm -hmm. i I can't i can't get past that and i won't get past it you can't convince me that that flag means anything else other than wishing for a time when we were um, treated as inhumane by law so you know that those sorts of situations were extraordinarily difficult um when i would come upon those and i would be out in the middle of some wild place but yet have to continue my work and it's it's hard to continue your work um in some of these places when you're supposed to have both eyes ahead and looking at birds and observing things around you it's hard to do that um because we only have two eyes most of us and it's hard to keep both eyes focused ahead and one eye behind your back. So I felt I felt like I developed or maybe had this sense, you know, this heightened sense of um of of just watchfulness really. And that's something that I've carried throughout a good portion of my life as a black man. Um I tell folks I you know I can identify a police cruiser in the dark from four hundred yards away, unmarked um, I can tell by the way it rides who's in it and um and and why is that well it it's because I think we as 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 black people um i mean there there are survival skills that you that you develop and and you pay attention and it's hard for others to understand that if you've never walked in those shoes if you've never mm-hmm. been pulled over for no reason at all you know if you've never been profiled and followed in a store um if you've never been called out of your name if you've never heard the clunk of of, of doors locking as you walk by or to have someone clutch their purse closer to them as the elevator door closes behind you and they make sure that they step to the furthest corner those are all things that you experience um as 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 a black man um in this in this country so being out in the in the middle of 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 the wild and seeing 
a Confederate flag or seeing KKK spray painted on something meant that somebody with a certain mentality had been there. Now, all that being said, um, you know, and that awareness, man, I, you know, most of the people that I've ever worked with who happen not to be black, who happen to be white, um, just extraordinarily, extraordinarily good um, professional folks, many of whom are friends um, that, you know, man, I, 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 these are people who I have so much in common with, but then sometimes they would be blind to the things that I was, that, that gave me pause. Sure. So, you know, those, those moments I think are when I talk to my, my white friends now, um, you know, and trying to describe what those moments feel like, you know, if you don't know what sort of that, that bitter taste of bile welling up in the back of your throat, that taste of fear feels like um, when there's supposed to be someone that is ordained to serve and protect you, but your fear might be that they're going to do just the opposite. Um, that That's a very different feeling that it's hard to describe to people. So you, you asked the question about some of the whitest circumstances I've ever been in. Uh, you know, I've, I've. Can I stop you just for one second? Can I stop you just for one second? And in the psychology literature, we call that healthy cultural paranoia. Yes. Yeah, I mean. And you nailed you nailed it as a survival technique. I mean, like you would be dead. Right. You could be dead right. As, right. Mm. So, so you ignore that at your own peril. You know, right. and exactly. and society would tell you, you know, you'll have people tell you, oh, it'll be okay, just. Well, no, there's <laughs> there's something in almost in my limbic brain that's telling me, that's right. hey, hold up, turn around, go back, slow down, mm -hmm. um, don't go that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And and I pay it. I mean, I'm a zoologist. <laughs> I pay attention to those things um, and, and I understand. But I've also had, you know, my share, Dr. Stacy, of having to overcome those things and saying, OK. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this thing and everything was okay. But the other part of it in overcoming that is that it, it, it builds sort of this duality of persona where you begin to internally question was, well, was, was that what I thought it was or wasn't it? Did they say what I thought they said? Um, mm -hmm. was I being followed or not? Uh -huh. And that creates a very different sort of rust. It creates a very different sort of wearing on you when you've got to think about things that other people don't have to think about. You bet. And that's called race-based stress, as you know. So you were going to pivot to the whitest situation and I stopped you. So why don't you go ahead oh, and go there? Well, I, you know, I've been in a lot. Um, and, you know, one of the the odd things that I tell people is one of the one of the whitest places you can go. Well, I, you know, I have a saying I've, I've I've written that birding bird watching is one of the whitest things that you can do, and it is statistically speaking. It, it, it's uh it's overwhelmingly white, um, and and that demographic is changing slowly, but it is right now what it is. But I, I think about all the places that I go and and, you know, I spend a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time, um, for example, in, in places like Vermont and um, and Vermont is is not a very diverse 
state, at least not the places where mm-hmm. I've been. Um, but one of the things that Vermont brought into focus for me when I would go there um, as a writer was that I felt um, an odd kinship with the place and some of the people there. But then I also understood mm-hmm. my Blackness in a way that allowed me to write some of the things that I've written. And it wasn't any prejudice that I have experienced in some of those places, but I think in some ways a freedom from um, a lot of expectation. And sometimes, and you know, and I think mm-hmm. about, I think about, um, I think about writers like James Baldwin, mm-hmm. who um, decided to um, to expatriate and, and go to um, France, for example. I can I can tell you that when my grandfather came back to Edgefield, South Carolina in, um, in, in 1919, 1918, 1919, he begged my grandmother to go back to France. He wanted to move to France. Why? Um, because he, he said he walked the streets, um, and was not treated, um, with disdain that he was able to walk the streets as a man, but yet when he came back to America, he could not even wear the uniform. Of course, they took them out of American uniforms when they got there, they gave them French uniforms. Um, But 1919 was one of the bloodiest years for black people um, in the United States. And and I say all that to say that, um, you know, my my grandfather was in in a very white space but where people treated him with respect. And um, I always tell folks that's that's a critical thing for me, how people treat me. Um, that, you know, one of the great one of the, the great pleasures is um, to be ignored. <laughs> um, to, to, you know, to, 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 to go in a store and yeah, sure. Ask if you can help me be courteous, be kind, do your job. Right. And then let me shop. Don't shadow. Don't shadow. Don't shadow me. Um, I don't want extra attention from the police. I want them to serve and protect me as they serve and protect others. So, um, so that's that's one of the oxymorons of it. I think I tell people that Vermont is a place where a lot of my writing was born, and it's one of the whitest places I've ever been. Well, it's interesting because you talk about France because my husband and I went to France um, a couple of years ago for my 50th and mm-hmm. he still talks about today how he felt, how somehow the weight of being a black man was lifted for him while we wow. were in, in country there. So how do you how do you cope with kind of uh, being the dot or the, the, the crow or the blackbird and the snow what was it the crow in the snow uh the mm-hmm. racing in mm-hmm. the milk what kinds of things are you doing to help you to continue to thrive well it's um internally um it's i've i've been successful as a scientist at, at what i do and um and and i've i've proven myself in in those ways even though i think you're constantly if you're ambitious you're constantly um trying to sort of one up um, that that proof. So 
I make sure that I have my I's dotted and my T's crossed. And, um, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's why I tell people passion is important so that you can be the best that you can be. I don't want people questioning. Sure. My, I don't want people questioning my credentials. So, you know, those letters behind my name mean something. Um, and uh-huh. you need to understand what they mean that I have that level of expertise. So that's sort of a mechanical kind of thing from the inside that that we can always uh-huh. do. Um, on the day to day, you know, sometimes it's a struggle to be honest about it, um, because uh-huh. no matter how much you achieve, how successful you are, you can still just be one traffic stop away, one quote unquote, bad apple cop away, um, if you believe that, one bad apple cop away from being breathless. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, that there's, there's, that, that, there's that struggle. How do you have your I's dotted and your T's crossed in that situation? Right. You know, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you do that? So your head is always on this swivel. The thing that exercises me in many ways is speaking out, you know, and with, with Congressman Lewis's passing and his words um, on, mm-hmm. on, on getting into good trouble, into that necessary trouble, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's important mm-hmm. for me to speak out. It's important for me to write um, not just the science that I know, but it's important for me to relate the love, my passions in life so that people understand how they converge underneath my black skin. Um, you know, that that, that, that bird watching um, boy who is a, a, a scientist, an ornithologist who lived that dream, um, who writes these words, who's a poet, um, that there's still struggles there as a black man. And mm-hmm. I want, I don't ever want people to forget that. I, I, I had someone on social media a, a while back um, tell me that, uh, well, you know, you gripe too much. It's like you don't want things to get better. And, um, you know, for what it's for what such things are worth on social media, um, it, sure. it, it was um, it was telling to me um, coming mm-hmm. from someone that's a bit younger than me but also coming from the point of view of how dare you. Mm-hmm. And, and so I want people in the spirit of both um, Congressman Lewis and James Baldwin and Dr. King and mm-hmm. Malik Al-Shabazz and, and anybody else, um, I, I want them to understand that I have, I have love in my heart um, for, mm-hmm. for all for all humankind and for wild things, but um, it's complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's complex. So, you know, that's why I wrote about, um, you know, the Central Park incident. I said, I, you know, forgiveness is not in me for mm-hmm. her. Mm. I and well, and and it's not my that's not my job. Um, but even if I forgive, that doesn't mean exonerate. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because accountability needs to needs to happen. Um, regardless. Well, there's, yeah, there's certainly, I'm certainly going to be held accountable even for things I don't do. Mm -hmm. I mean, George Floyd was held accountable for just being black and that got him dead. So. Right, 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 right. It did. 
it did. Did you, were you, when you heard about the Amy Cooper um, situation, did you, were you surprised or have you had anything like that happen to you or while birding? I, you know, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, if you're black uh, and have not had an incident of racism come up against you, birding, jogging, doing anything else, then you haven't lived long enough. Um, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna come. But uh, you know, when I heard that, I was, um, I was, I was surprised, but not shocked, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So I was just, I was makes perfect sense. <laughs> I was like, oh, huh, okay. Um, and and then I watched the video, and the incredible thing to me was, and and I, you know, and I call it an assault. I don't know. I'm I'm no legal scholar, but I call it an assault because that's someone weaponizing mm-hmm. race and the police yeah. against one mm-hmm. another. It's like trying to light a match between a, a can of gasoline and a stick of dynamite mm-hmm. and wondering why anybody mm-hmm. would look at you the wrong way for striking that match. And um mm-hmm. and and she struck the match. She did. <laughs> she well the thing is that she she had the matchbook in her pocket. So there was somewhere in her psyche, in that pocket of her mind, there was that idea. Uh-oh. Then you pull the, the, the matchbook out. You pull the lighter or whatever out. Then you hold it up. Then you light it. Uh-huh. And the only thing, I, you know, my I think, I think in part that, that oddly enough, I think that, that Mr. Cooper, I think that Christian's life was saved by COVID because things are stretched so thin, were stretched so mm-hmm. thin in the city that maybe people didn't have an opportunity mm-hmm. to to answer. But I, I shudder to think if the police had answered that call, who was going to have to answer the questions? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and she knew that. And that's why yes. she's able to weaponize it so quickly. I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, you know, with those with those words and look, um, there are sincere apologies that people can make. And and it's up to it's between that person and, 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 and the person that they're apologizing to. But I, th- I think these days that what happens with so many people, because we saw it in other incidents, you know, when people lose their job and suddenly they're sorry. And their dog. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> but then they get their dog back. She got the dog uh, back? Oh, yeah. Oh, shut up. Um, you know, um, but, but, then, but then it happens that they, they, they're sorry. They're suddenly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I always want to know. Aside, and it's so easy for people to say that. I want to understand what was your motivation when you did that. What were you thinking? I want to hear that explained. Um, but you know, again, they—they're not on the hook to me, so they—they sure. they don't, they don't owe me that. But I feel very strongly, Doctor Stacy, about um, that's part of the way that this—we're going to have to move forward in this country or anywhere where racism is part of the system mm-hmm. is there has to be accountability for your actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They've been holding, they've been holding black folks accountable for 
um, for 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 sitting in the wrong seats, for looking for looking or allegedly looking the wrong way. Emmett Till right. uh, paid for his life for a whistle that he never blew. Right. So, in in those ways, I think if if people understand accountability. That to me is one of the greatest uh, tools for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. That when you become e accountable for the words you speak and for your acts, and and you begin to understand those, and that you endure the sometimes necessary pain of the of the penal system. If sure. well, pe people say it was a misdemeanor. Well, let there be let there be a hefty fine. Let there you be bet. what there needs to be. You bet. But you can't just walk. Right. I agree. I, I agree. There was a um a situation, I don't even know where it was, where um a white man held a young black youth hostage, if you will, and not even if you will, until the police got there and um and it was in the nighttime, he was headed to like basketball practice or something in the morning and they 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 held him accountable for like kidnapping or something like that. So uh, let me let, let let me move on just a little bit. Okay, nine rules for black bird watchers. So, <laughs> so when did you write that? That was 2013. Um, wow. But I guess I'm wondering, is there any one of those nine rules that one you like to highlight, or anything that you want to add that would be a tenth or an eleventh rule? Well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I it's funny. Uh, as my father used to say, laughable but not funny. I wrote another uh, ten rules for the black bird watcher. Um, uh, it was called Ten New Revelations. Um, it was published in Vanity Fair. I wrote that the Saturday mm -hmm. before um, Christian Cooper's incident. Huh. And and the nine the original nine rules. And this is sad. Um, I wrote the original nine rules for the black bird watcher, uh, for the black birder in response to Trayvon's, um, Trayvon Martin's mm -hmm. um, killing. And um, I, it, it took me very little time to write it. I, I got a request from the poetry editor at Orion whether asking if I wanted to do an enumeration. I said, sure. And um, and they gave me two weeks, and uh, and uh, I think it was an hour or two later at the most, um, I had sent them this nine rules. So, um, it was uh, it was important for me for people to understand that um, you know that I'm in this skin, that I have this passion for birds, mm -hmm. that that puts me, that gives me. Um, a lot of pleasure. It's 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 helped me live a good life. My family and I live a good life. Um, but then I'm in in this black skin, and proudly so. I would not be any anything else other than who I am. But I wanted those nine rules to help people understand that this is who I am. You know, I, one of the things that I, I, you know, in the new, in the new, uh, in the new nine rule, in the new ten new revelations, I say, um, don't, don't tell me that you don't see color. 
you certainly see it when you look at a painted bunting. And so that's one of the most colorful birds in the world. But to have people tell me, mm. and I think they think that somehow that's going to make me feel better. Well, I don't see color. I'm colorblind. Well, that's too bad for you. If that's a medical condition, I get it. But don't tell me you're colorblind is some way to dismiss my color. Mm. And, and, and so that's one of the things that I always want people to understand. You know, we see the color in birds and we treasure birds in part for the beautiful colors that they have. But some of the birds that are often ignored are those brown birds, those black birds. And, and, and so, um, you know, black birds are maligned. And, 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 and often thought of as less. Many of those species are actually declining because people perhaps don't see them as being beautiful enough to conserve or to think about or to think about in a way. When's the last time you heard somebody say something good about a crow? Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 it comes to, and, and that's, and it, they're extraordinarily, ravens, um, which are, are, are crows, are extraordinarily intelligent birds. They, um, they can count. They have these complex family lives. They play. They communicate. They're long-lived but they're maligned. So when the, with the work that I do now, Dr. Stacy, I spend a lot of time trying to get people to relate to birds in that way. And I want them mm -hmm. to understand how I mm -hmm. relate to birds. I understand. Mm -hmm. So what would Dr. Lanham tell Drew about his work and about being the dot? That little boy walking between your parents' house and your grandparents' house. To be proud of standing out, but also to understand mm. that if you are the dot dropped into that bowl of milk, you will create circles just as a pebble will in a lake. And, and ultimately, those, those ripples that you create um, have the potential to become waves and to affect every other particle in that bowl that's not like you you know the the folks old folks used to say bloom where you're planted grow where you're planted and i say make waves where you're dropped mm -hmm, mm -hmm. make make sure that your excellence make sure that your passion makes waves mm. Let people know that you are there. Don't be afraid to be the first. Somebody has to. Somebody has to. Don't shy away from being different. Dr. Lanham has agreed to uh, bless us uh, with one of his poetry pieces about his love of bird watching. And so uh, I just want to thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate this conversation. It makes me want to think about how I might be able to bird watch in my own life a little bit more. Um, but we'll end with you sharing. Well, with thank us. you for, thank you for the time, Dr. Stacy. I really appreciate um, what you're doing as, as a, as a, as a service to us, to all of us. So I want to read um, from a poem from my book, Sparrow Envy, and it's called wild wishes beyond widgets. 
Real world means inside obligations to tend to, widget making, deadlines pressing, bills always due. More and more four walls feels like a trap, a cage with no escape. Not being out, not wandering somewhere wild seems sinful. There's something wonderful I'm not witnessing. Some bird or beast flies or creeps by as I stare into someone else's expectational chasm. It's an expanse I'm increasingly unwilling to span. A new sun warms in brilliant hues. The same tiring orb sinks into the abysmal blue. When that coming and going cycles absent my first-hand witness, I'm squandering time. If wildness is a wish, then, I'm rubbing the lamp hard for a million more wandering moments. That's my favorite line is, I'm rubbing the lamp a million <laughs> times more. <laughs> That's fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so very much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate, I appreciate you asking me in. I really do. And I appreciate the forum that you provide for, for this unique, um, this unique subject matter. So thank you again, Dr. Stacy. This episode was edited by Caroline Bone. Special thanks to our podcast intern, Amanda Gillette. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by DavisDeliciousDelights.com. DavisDeliciousDelights.com, custom-made personalized pastries, cakes, pies, and cookies made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit DavisDeliciousDelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $35.99 or more.